listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Reading from the ESV. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, Uh, all of you here in person and online, and everybody who's going to be listening to this later. Welcome. We'd invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Matthew 5, 27 through 30 with me, if you haven't already yet this morning. Uh, The last few weeks, we've been walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon from Matthew 5, 6, and and 7, uh, looking at it as a discipleship manual. I mean, this is how Jesus calls His followers to wise growth in whole person righteousness. Now, we're in this part of the sermon where there's six sections where Jesus looks at specific parts of the Old Testament law, and and He redirects us back to the intended meaning of that law, which was always about giving people sort of external ways of measuring their internal dispositions, right? That you hear a law, and then if you find yourself not wanting to obey that law, the the solution isn't ignore the law uh, or change the law. The solution is change your heart, Disciple, discipline your heart. Transform your desires so that you want to follow God's law because, I mean, He's the one who rescued you. He's the one who rescued you from slavery, delivered you into new life. Right? So, Jesus in this section, like any good prophet, He's redirecting people back to the whole purpose of the law. Right? Don't liberate your desires, disciple them. And now we're up to the part where Jesus takes that principle of discipling your heart. And he applies it to lust. Y'all ready for this? Uh, If you're a visitor with us this morning, you picked a great Sunday. I promise this isn't the only thing we ever talk about, but this is what's next in our passage. Um, I should say, too, parents, uh, you know, it's up to you when and how your kids, you know, sort of engage this topic. So I'm, I'm planning on, on, on pitching this kind of for about 11 years old and, and up. My daughter called me yesterday. She's 11. Uh, she was on the road headed to Iowa to spend the week with uh, my wife's parents. And so she called me yesterday afternoon. I was like, what are you doing, Daddy? I said, I'm working on my sermon. She says, what are you preaching about? And I said, sex. And she said, <laughs> I said, you know what that is, right? And she said, yes, mommy's, Mommy told me. Uh, it's like, okay, is it a little weird that I'm going to talk about this? And she's like, yes. I said, well, the Bible says a lot about it, so I think it's important. She's like, okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to present this knowing that my 11-year-old's going to listen to it with my in-laws. Okay, so no personal illustrations whatsoever. 
I should say, too, that we recognize, like, this is one of four sermons on the topic as we go through the the next few verses, and we know it's going to raise a lot of questions. We're ready for that. If at any point during the sermon you think of a question, or anytime later when you're thinking about it and you think of a question, text it. The number is up there, 855-581-0388. Text it in. We will record special episodes of our Cut for Time right after each sermon to kind of handle some of those questions. If you have an awkward question and you don't want to text it in, just ask to borrow someone's phone. Just, just for a minute. No big, no big deal. And then text it in so that we can, we can answer it in those, uh, those podcast episodes. If, by the way, you're going, podcast, what podcast? Text the word podcast to that number and you'll get a link to where it is so you can, you can follow along. All right, let's jump into this. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You've already turned there, so let's start there. I already said we're going to take a couple of weeks to cover this passage, three weeks in this passage, and a fourth week in the couple of verses about divorce. But in order to get our bearings on what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, especially verses 27, 28, 29, 30, today I'm going to focus us in on what Jesus already assumes to be true when he preaches this, right? There's background beliefs, assumptions, foundational thoughts or ways of thinking about what human beings are, what a marriage is, what sex is for, that Jesus assumes, because, you know, he's read his Old Testament, that he assumes before preaching this. So if we're going to understand what he's doing here in 27 through 30, we need to first make sure we're on board with or at least aware of what he's saying or what he's assuming and doesn't need to say because he knows his Old Testament. So this morning, I'm actually not going to be in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. I'm going to be in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Go ahead and turn there. If, uh, if you need help, it's probably on page 1 or maybe page 2, right at the very beginning. We're going to take the rest of this morning to reset our foundations, understanding what Jesus affirms and assumes before we can understand what he teaches. So today, three huge ideas, three kind of giant foundational background beliefs that form the the core of Jesus' thinking about marriage and sex and sexuality. Three huge beliefs. First, that human beings are embodied souls. It's what we are. I'll dig into that some more in a minute. We are embodied souls. Secondly, that marriage is a one flesh union of two embodied souls. Okay, we are embodied souls. That's what we are. Second, marriage is a one flesh union. And third, sex only makes sense inside of a one flesh marriage union of two embodied souls. You with me? I'll say all of that like 30 more times. So get your pens and pencils ready. Let's jump in. We're going to start with the first of those three background beliefs that human beings are embodied souls. And for this and for all three of them, we're going to start all the way back there in the very beginning, Genesis 1. I want to start by highlighting just one verse from Genesis 1, verse 27. It's easy to find because it's the one in your Bible that probably looks more like poetry because it is. Verse 27 of Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this passage tells us a lot, a whole lot more than I have time to unpack right now, but it answers specifically some questions about humanity, about human beings, about humankind, what we are. And though it means a whole lot more, at the very least, we can understand from this that human beings are created as a, as a unique combination of both physical materiality and immaterial spirituality, both physical and immaterial, body and soul, in other words, at least these two parts. Human beings are not, in other words, we are not animals, merely and purely material, guided by instinct. Nor are human beings angels, purely spiritual, with, I I guess, some sort of envelope. (laughs) We're not purely spiritual, we're guided by intellect. We are embodied souls. Human beings are body and soul, and and the body and the soul are, are joined. They're not separated or kept separate from one another, but they're joined in a unique way. See, we are not flesh robots run by a soul computer. Okay? Nor are our bodies, the material part of us, our bodies are not uncontrollable animals with our souls just along for the ride like a monkey on an elephant. That's not what we are. Nor are bodies and souls, you know, attached but unaffected by the other. Now, our material and immaterial aspects are more like two blades on a pair of scissors. Our bodies and our souls, our material and immaterial aspects work together. What we do with our bodies impacts our souls, and what we desire in our souls impacts our bodies. We are embodied souls. There is an inextricable bond between body and soul, and you cannot separate them without doing damage to one, the other, or or both, which doesn't mean people aren't trying. Let me give you an example in our modern culture, which sort of pushes us to affirm one side or the other, never both, one side or the other, depending on what's more useful in the moment. So, for instance, if you've been steeped in sort of the world that we've all grown up in, but you're, you're thinking about this is not shaped by Scripture, you may uh, assume or say, well, of course, I just know that we are purely physical, material beings. And what we do with our bodies affects only our bodies. So, sex is no big deal. It's just a purely physical desire, right? If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're aroused, you have sex. That's all there is to it. It doesn't need to mean anything more than that. Of course, on the other hand, and at the same time, you may also believe that one of the primary ways, or if not the only way, that you express who you truly are deep down inside, irregardless of biology or anything else, is through your sexuality. Your sexuality and how you express it is, you know, the most important part of you. Who you're attracted to, what you like to do, why you like to do it, on and on. This is who you fundamentally are. And so sex is an absolutely essential aspect of your personal identity and expression, and also purely physical and no big deal. 
this is the kind of you know, beliefs that don't fit together that we tend to hold, and some of us tend to hold when we try to pull apart both body and soul. You can't have it both ways because we are embodied souls. Or another way of putting it is we are inspirited bodies. Body and soul, inextricably linked. And if we are embodied souls, as, as Jesus assumed and believed and didn't even need to say out loud because everybody agreed, then what we do with our bodies affects our souls. What we desire with our souls affects our bodies. Now, that's huge background belief number one. We are embodied souls. The second big background belief that Jesus didn't need to say out loud because everybody assumed it and agreed with it is that marriage is a one flesh union of embodied souls. So keep this embodied souls part in mind as we move into this next point, which is also established in the beginning, uh, in Genesis 2 this time. See, in the Genesis 2 telling of the narrative, God has made all the animals and the fish and everything, and he's made a man, and he gave that man the job of going and naming every creature, every animal, and looking for a, you know, a partner that is suitable, that's fit for him, and he's looking at all of them, and none of them are embodied souls, and they're all just bodies, and so he goes, well, none of these fit, and God says, all right, now, let's put you to sleep, and he takes Adam's side and forms a woman out of Adam's side. And then when Adam wakes up from this sleep, lo and behold, he sees a woman. And the first thing a naked dude does when he sees a naked woman walking up to him is sing a love song. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The first recorded human speech is a naked guy singing a rapturous love song to a naked woman. And it goes like this. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's a beautiful song. Okay, maybe not as catchy as I Will Always Love You, but it's got a lot more to teach us. So, one quick observation from this song. When Adam sees Eve coming towards him, he recognizes immediately, this is captured in the song, he recognizes immediately that she is like him. But also, she's very different from him. So what this one verse captures for us is that between male and female, there is an essential identicality. It, that's a word. Both are human. These are not two different species, nor are they from two different planets. There's an essential identicality, but there is also an essential differentiality. Male is not female. Female is not male. There are biological differences between the two. And the point of the way the author writes this narrative is to remind us. So, so Adam is like a part of his side is used to form Eve. That it's, it's communicating to us that male and female are essentially equal. Look, female is not a derivative of male. Or as some ancients believed, female is not simply a male, but not formed completely, or unformed, or malformed. Maleness is not the height of creation with female as a close second, like, oh, we need a helper. Let's make the same thing, only variation on the theme. No. Male and female together equal our two sides of the image of God, an image that can only be imaged with both together. 
Now, the writer of Genesis 2, in putting this story together, takes that song, you know, first recorded human speech, and, and ties it directly to the nature of marriage. He takes the essential created nature of human beings and says, now this is why marriage. This is why, therefore, in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, what, what Jesus is affirming up ahead in the Sermon on the Mount uh, is, is this picture that a man and woman leave their parents and hold fast to or cling to or unite with one another. And that uniting creates what the Bible refers to throughout as a, as a one flesh union. Now, Jesus believed, and everybody took it for granted, that one flesh union means more, it means a whole lot more, than simply uniting biologically in sexual intimacy, you know, generally as a way to sort of reinforce the romantic feelings that you have for each other. To be in a one flesh union, the way the Bible pictures it, is to be in a covenantal, comprehensive union. Every one of those words is important, a covenantal, comprehensive union. Let me flesh out what I mean by that. Covenantal. Now, a covenant is a specific kind of or type of relationship. It's not the same as a contractual relationship. I mean, you all know what a contractual relationship is. It's, it's the kind that texts you at, at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning and says, congratulations, your Xfinity direct draft has been, you know, removed. A contractual arrangement is I give you something in exchange for something else. We trade two things that we both have agreed are valuable in order to both get what we want out of this relationship. I love my Netflix subscription, right? $11.99 a month. I am happy to pay it um, until I probably watch the next season of Stranger Things, and then I'm just not sure what's on Netflix anymore that's worth watching. Like, we tried Is It Cake, and it was a dud. Have any of you seen Is It Cake? Spoiler alert, it's like always cake, and it's, anyway. <laughs> Everything I want to watch now is on Disney+. Plus or Hulu, or Peacock, or Apple TV. So if I were in a, you know, well, I am, I'm in a contractual relationship with Netflix, which is easy enough to say like, hey, you don't have what I want. I'm not going to give you what you want. That's the way it works. And in fact, well, maybe I'll hold on to you for a little while, but I'm going to go hang out with four other streaming services because they have a little bit of what I want. Now, contractual relationships like that make perfect sense when it's a streaming service or an auto mechanic or a gym membership or a cheese of the month club. But our modern culture is telling us, because they haven't thought about this biblically, our modern culture is telling us, well, yeah, and that also applies to sex and sexual relationships. You commit to someone as long as they meet your needs and they commit to you as long as you meet their needs. And each party, just like with a Netflix subscription, each party uses the other person to get what they need or get what they want until you don't anymore, and then you split. Now, Jesus didn't need to say that out loud because everybody knew and assumed that marriage and sexual relationships aren't contractual. They're covenantal. A one-flesh union is a covenantal relationship. It's different from a contractual relationship. In a covenantal relationship, each party 
in the relationship pledges themselves to the other person and to the relationship itself. Each person in that, in that relationship is more committed to the relationship itself, the good of the relationship, and the good of the other person than they are to having their own needs met or desires fulfilled. Right? In a covenantal relationship, you stick around even if the other person is disappointing you or isn't holding up their end of the deal or isn't meeting all of your needs because you committed to them their good and the good of the relationship. Now, there are appropriate times and appropriate ways in which a covenantal relationship can and probably should be dissolved. Um, So don't hear me saying that once you're in one of these relationships, well, you're in it, you're stuck, and the other person is free to use and abuse you however they want. That's not what we're talking about, but we'll, we'll dig into that topic a little bit more in a couple of weeks when we talk about divorce. But the point of saying today that a one flesh union is a covenantal comprehensive union is to say that a one flesh marriage is the kind of relationship that is more loving and more emotional than simply a legal, contractual, make sure you sign the end user license agreement relationship. More emotional and loving than my relationship with Netflix. At the same time, it's also a more enduring and a more binding relationship than one that is simply emotional. It's more enduring and binding than a friendship, because friendships come and go as situations change and people move away. Uh, A marriage, a one-flesh covenantal union, is not like that. It's more binding. And so you can't enter into it or exit out of it lightly. You can't trade in one partner in a covenant for a better model or upgrade your relationship to a different service. When you're in a one-flesh union, it's not about you. It's about the two of you together. That's what I mean by covenantal. Now, what about comprehensive? It's a covenantal, comprehensive union. When the Bible teaches that that a one-flesh marriage is a comprehensive union, we're we're saying uh, this is the kind of covenant that is exclusive and permanent. A one-flesh union is exclusive to the two members in the union and permanent. It cannot be easily dissolved. (laughs) It's right here. Uh, One flesh, not multiple fleshs. It's exclusive and permanent. And theologians and thinkers have long recognized that when two people are married, when they enter into a one-flesh covenant. They do not simply become an attractive arrangement of two similar things. You're not like a rose and a dandelion in a vase. Like, look how good they look together. I'll let you decide who's the dandelion. It's not like putting scrambled eggs on toast. Like, what a great combination. I love you two together. Right? A covenantal, comprehensive union is more like putting together the ingredients for a cake. You put the ingredients together, apply a little heat, and you get a new thing, not just a mixture or an arrangement of two unchanged, previously unrelated things. And if you are in a relationship that is more like a cake than a flower arrangement, you can't walk away or pull away from that union without doing fundamental damage to yourself, the other, and the union itself, because it's comprehensive. A comprehensive covenantal union. Third word, what do I mean by union? What exactly is uniting in this union? 
Well, <laughs> everything. It's comprehensive. So there's a uniting of minds. You have to agree on what this marriage is, why you are doing it, where you are going in your life together. There's a uniting of wills. Both partners have to voluntarily choose to enter into the union, and no one in that union can, you know, sort of subjugate the other's will with their own or replace the other's will with their own. There's also a uniting of spirits an emotional and spiritual bond that comes from sharing the same direction in life lived in relationship with God, right? We're embodied souls, so we bring all of ourselves to a one-flesh union, including the uniting of bodies. Now, by uniting and uniting bodies, I mean something more, something deeper, and something more profound than merely touching. Any two bodies can touch, even touch sexually. But for two bodies to unite completely, they have to come together in a unique way that is ordered towards a unique end goal that cannot be achieved unless those two bodies come together in that way. Now, what exactly that end goal is comes through clearly, again, in Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God blesses uh, the male and the female in verse 28. He says, and then He says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Your essential maleness and your essential femaleness are both required and required to come together in order for reproduction to happen. Now, there's all sorts of ways God could have designed us to reproduce, right? Like starfish, cut cut off an arm and now I have a child, right? A lot less fun. Sorry, I said no personal illustrations. God created human beings in such a way that the, the biological function of reproduction, being, being fruitful and multiplying, fulfill this, can only be accomplished through uniting sexually. It takes both a male reproductive system and a female reproductive system to come together in an ordered way for a complete reproductive system to work. I know this is a super romantic way to talk about marriage, (laughs) right? Some of you are like, if that's the line he used with his wife, their relationship is special. (laughs) I know, it sounds dry and it's clinical and it's technical. But that's largely because most of us, if not all of us, have, have been, you know, marinated in a culture that has sort of revised what we think about when we think about a marriage. We've bought into a revised definition, a definition that is totally foreign to Jesus' way of thinking in Matthew chapter 5. If we told him what we think a marriage is based on the culture we're living in today, he'd be like, that's not a marriage. Let me, let me make this clear. Most people today, especially in modern Western societies, believe, and probably most of us at least take this for granted, that a marriage is the union of equal partners who commit to romantically loving and caring for each other and to sharing the burdens and the blessings of domestic life. Again, not super romantic, but, you know, clear at least. In other words, most of us feel, because we've been soaking in our culture, that at its core, marriage is a romantic union of hearts and minds that is enhanced by whatever forms of sexual intimacy the partners find agreeable. 
So when, when a person and another person love each other in a special way, they get to make a promise to each other and then touch each other however they want. That's what we think of marriage is. It, it sounds more or less right, except, you know, there's nothing in that definition that inherently restricts the union to only two people. Right? Why not three or four? 42. People who feel romantically about each other, decide to live together and share the burdens and blessings of domestic partnership uh, or group partnership or whatever you call it, and, uh, you know, enhance the relationship through whatever forms of sexual intimacy they find enjoyable. Why not? There's no reason to limit it if a marriage is romantic feelings and shared domestic uh, responsibilities. There's also no reason to limit it, as Jesus assumed and as kind of culture has, has believed for millennia, that it's between a man and a woman. Why not two men or two women or two men and a woman or two women or however, whatever combination you want if you romantically care for each other and share the burdens and the blessings of domestic partnership and, and on and on, then what's wrong with that? See, where the church specifically, where we have failed so badly in the last 50, 60, 70 years or whatever is that we have assumed this new basic definition of marriage. It's romantic feelings, shared life, and, and, and you know, fun touching. That's a marriage. And we've baptized it and said, but God says it's only a man and a woman. But there's nothing in that definition that inherently says that this, this is what it's restricted to because that's not a marriage. A marriage is a comprehensive, so permanent and exclusive, it's a covenantal, not contractual, one flesh union of mind, soul, will, and body. It can only be two and must be between a male and a female because only two, one of each sex, can be united bodily into a whole reproductive system, which is part of what this whole thing points at. It has to be exclusive and permanent, comprehensively, completely uniting minds, bodies, spirits, wills. I know, super romantic. But I mean, super romantic has kind of been our problem, right, for the last couple of decades? So, what did Jesus believe or assume to be true? He didn't even, didn't even need to say it out loud. Well, number one is that we're embodied souls, and number two is that embodied souls enter into a marriage, which is a one-flesh, comprehensive, covenantal union. And what does that have to do with sex? Well, everything, right? If we're embodied souls in this union that is a union of souls and minds and wills and bodies, comprehensive, covenantal, then what we do with our bodies in that marriage union matters. So here's the thing. Jesus believed that sex is a covenant good, not a contractual good. Think back to the Netflix subscription. What are the goods that Netflix and I uh, share with each other? I give them money, they give me entertainment. Those are the goods, right? It's a, it's a mutual exchange of value for us to both get something that we want out of the other. And while our culture tends to think of sex the same way, that idea was completely foreign to Jesus and his time. Jesus believed that sex is a covenant good. 
not a contractual one. And when sex is a contractual or a consumer good, then you give sex in order to get or receive um, a feeling of power. Or you give sex in order to receive a feeling of being adored and loved. Or you give sex in order to feel good about yourself. You exchange one good for the other, you know, in order to receive something else of equal value. You trade sex for belonging, or sex for self-esteem, or sex for self-expression. But Jesus believed that sex is a covenant good. read a great book this last week that is difficult to Google without getting in trouble. It's called Divine Sex. Um, so just go to Amazon and click the first link, none of the others. And in that, that book, a New Zealand pastor, a guy named Jonathan Grant, writes, that the fundamental principle underlying Scripture's preservation of sex within marriage is that there's no such thing as real sex outside of marriage. Sex is marriage, or else it is self-annihilation. Although sex outside of marriage often feels like a powerful bond. He says it simply cannot carry the weight of the deeper commitment and is prone to a manipulative dynamic by which sex is traded rather than shared. So he goes on to ask the question, do you think Jesus wants you to live your life as a pleasure seeker or a covenant maker? What kind of a life is Jesus calling you to? A life as a pleasure seeker or a covenant maker? Because remember, we are embodied souls, and marriage is a one flesh union of our bodies and our souls. Well, then in that union, when there is that one flesh union and the covenant and the commitment and the permanence and the exclusivity that comes along with it, sex comes to mean so much more than just, you know, biological unity. So much more than just emotional intimacy. So much more than just scratching a physical itch. Right? In a one flesh marriage covenant, sex between a husband and a wife becomes an incredibly meaningful experience because sex within the marriage covenant actually reinforces the covenant and recommits both parties to it. It's covenant glue that holds the relationship together. And once you've made that marriage covenant, then sex becomes almost like a a sacrament. A sacrament, which is an external, visible sign of an inward, invisible reality. You know, whenever we do baptisms down there, we always make it a point to say that baptism is a symbol. It's an outward symbol. It's sort of an enacted ritual that symbolizes physically what is true of us inwardly, spiritually. So when someone is, you know, baptized down into the water and pulled back out, we say buried in the likeness, you know, buried to look like Jesus, raised in the likeness of His resurrection. Now go walk in new life. Because baptism is a physical symbol of death and resurrection with Jesus. In a similar way, physical act of sexual union in a marriage, and I don't mean similar as in you do it once and then you're good. It's more like the Lord's Supper where, you, you know, you do that every month at least. Well, apparently that one didn't land. <laughs> or some of you are just too awkwardly like, uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, now I have to get actually back to my notes. Um, 
Y'all are really quiet, by the way, this morning. I'm getting very little response from you, like nowhere near what I normally do. And I keep waiting for some of those guys to be like, amen, but I'm, I get nothing. Anyway, back to the sacramental thing. In a similar way, the physical act of sexual union engages the whole of both persons in an act of self-giving and self-commitment. When you make yourself physically naked and vulnerable, it's a physical representation, it's a sign, it's a symbol of what you have done with the entirety of your life, with your whole life. So within a marriage, every time a couple engages in a sexual union, they are recommitting to one another and to the marriage covenant. They're saying, by what they're doing, they are saying, I belong to you completely, permanently, exclusively. That's what I'm, I'm acting out. They're saying, I am opening myself to you physically as a symbol of how I've opened my entire life and my future to you. And I'm receiving your openness as a symbol of how you have opened the entirety of your life and your future to me. That kind of self-disclosure requires a radical commitment. But within that commitment, within that permanent, exclusive, lifelong commitment, then at the end of Genesis 2, the author can, can make this incredibly powerful observation about the first two human beings. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed. Now, not ashamed does not mean, and they both thought they looked pretty good. Whole lot more to it than that. It just it, it doesn't mean that they, you know, they were not embarrassed to be physically naked. Not ashamed means that neither party was afraid that their physical nakedness or their emotional vulnerability or their spiritual unity, neither party was afraid that the other was going to take advantage of their self-disclosure, of their physical opening to the other. Neither party, to be not ashamed is to be in a relationship where neither party is worried that the other person is going to take advantage of them because they've been open. This is why sex in a marriage covenant is so powerful, because it is a physically and emotionally and spiritually symbolic way of saying, I have given up everything for you, my independence, my future, my desires, my wants, my needs. I have given all of that up in order to make this promise to you, and I am physically open and vulnerable, and I won't use your vulnerability against you. Sex inside of marriage is incredibly powerful and incredibly beautiful. Can you see why sex outside of this kind of a covenant and commitment is so harmful and so destructive? Because sex outside of a permanent and exclusive and lifelong marriage covenant is saying to the other, hey, I see your openness. I see your vulnerability. I want to say thanks for that. But you're not getting anything don't expect anything beyond this moment out of me. Sex outside of that promise is saying, I'm going to use you up for my own benefit. I mean, I love you, but even more than that, I love the feeling I have when I'm with you. I don't love you enough to bind my future to you, just enough to be here right now. 
That's why that, that author I quoted earlier calls sex outside of marriage self-annihilation. Because to have physical union without whole life union is a lack of integrity. It disintegrates you as you are doing with, with your body what you refuse to do with your soul. And what Jesus believes and assumes and teaches is that you must not do with your body what you are unwilling to do with your whole life. Now, I could keep going on for, you know, hours talking about this topic, but I feel like the sermon is already a little bit racy, no pun intended. Thank you. Somebody gave that to me after first hour, and I promised I'd use it. If we had time, we would turn to like Song of Songs, which is this beautiful uh, celebration of married sex that also pictures our relationship with God. We go to Malachi and we talk about uh, divorce and what it does to a covenant, and we're going to go there in, in future weeks, but I've given you enough already to think about uh, this morning. So I'll briefly recap. Before we can understand what Jesus means when He says and He affirms, hey, you've heard, you shall not commit adultery, but... <laughs> Let me tell you what's going on beneath the surface. You can't, don't even look. We're not going to understand that if we don't understand what Jesus assumed and believed to be true. Three things. One, Jesus believes that human beings are embodied souls. What we do with our bodies affects our souls. What our souls desire affects our bodies. Don't pit the two against each other or try to separate them to get what you want out of either. Second, Jesus believes that marriage is a one-flesh union, a covenantal, comprehensive union of embodied souls. It can only take place between two people, a man and a woman, and is permanent, exclusive, and lifelong. It's a whole life commitment that cannot be, at least easily, cannot be easily broken. And third, Jesus believes that sex only makes sense inside of, within that lifelong one-flesh marriage covenant. In any other context, between any other people, it may feel like a powerful bond, but without the covenant, the foundation that holds that bond together, and the meaning that is given to sex just falls away. And sex becomes a way that we manipulate each other to get something out of each other, some good feeling. Sex becomes marketing as I try to convince you not to leave me. And so sex becomes about selfish taking instead of self-giving. So that's what Jesus believes. That's all in the background there in Matthew chapter 5. Before we turn there to see what he says when he goes on to say, here's a few more thoughts. Now, you've heard all that. You may be in, you know, one of a couple of different places. Maybe you, you may disagree with Jesus. You know what? You've slept around. You've had multiple partners, whatever, and you've loved it. It felt great. But if that's you... I want you to hear Jesus saying, he's going to say this in the next couple of weeks as we continue to flesh this out, uh, I have so much more in mind for you. I have something so much better for you. Or you, you may find yourself in a place where you, uh, you disagree with Jesus, or, or to put it more bluntly, you disagree with what I'm saying Jesus believes. And you're saying, no, Jesus is all about love. He would never say two people who love each other can't be together. If that's you, I think you've got to ask yourself, 
are you really listening to what Jesus is saying or assuming a whole bunch of things to be true that Jesus says, don't make my words say that because that's not what I believe. So you have to hear Jesus saying like, hey, don't take my words and, and twist them. You know, or maybe you, uh, you agree with Jesus, but um, like most of us, all of us probably, you know, you haven't done this right. I mean, you may be married now, you may be single, uh, but you've got a past that you can't shake, a past that doesn't really line up with uh, what Scripture teaches and what Jesus models is, is what was true. If that's you, then you've got to hear Jesus saying, I know, I understand what it's like to be tempted. I died single and never had sex. Jesus knows how deeply you long to be loved, to be accepted, to be held by somebody because he created that desire in you and for you to find union with others. But it's ultimately a desire that can only be fulfilled in him. He's saying, I'm what your heart is longing for. When you're single and feel alone, and when you're married and feel alone. You may also find yourself in a place where you agree with Jesus and you've tried to live this out, but someone else that you were in a relationship with has made it impossible for you to live this. Uh, they've either hurt you or abused you or walked away from you or said, eh, I'm out. It's not what I want. If that's you, got to hear Jesus saying, I know. I know what it's like to be betrayed by people I love. I know what it's like to be walked out on. I know what it's like to be used. He says, come to me anyway. I will not walk out on you. I will not use you. I will not abuse you. So what do you believe you know, we're going to dig in the next couple of weeks. We're going to dig into these verses, 27, 28, 29, 30. And Jesus is going to have some very difficult things to say to us that will not make sense unless we at least understand where he's coming from. So where are you coming from in this whole conversation? What do you believe? We've got three more weeks to flesh this out. And I want to hear the questions and the thoughts that you have. So there's the number text them in. This is part one of four, and there's a lot more to say about what Jesus calls us to do. For now, let's wrap this up and pray. Father, forgive us for confusing a beautiful beautifully drawn, painted masterpiece of what life lived in relationship with you looks like. Forgive us for mistaking that beautiful masterpiece for just a cheap knockoff or an ugly painting. You've given us a picture of flourishing. And we admit that many other things look so much more appealing. 
Father, may we find in our relationship with you such healing for our desires that every area of our lives, even our sexual lives, are brought into alignment and conformity, not just externally but internally, brought into alignment with who you are and what you desire for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.